We are Anthem Church. Thanks for checking out our podcast. For all the info you need, visit anthemforall.org and follow at Anthem Church Chicago. Alrighty, so Revelation 6 is where we're going to be this morning. We are picking up in our, uh, in our series that uh, we kind of paused for a, a, last week while Mark and Cindy Newman were with us. So two weeks ago, um, we, we uh, finished at Revelation chapter 5. It's our six-part series through the first seven chapters of the book of Revelation, a series that we've entitled The Revelation of Jesus. And I'm going to be teaching on chapter 6 today, and then when I get back from our trip to Europe, we're going to be concluding the series looking at Revelation chapter 7. It finally happened this week, and I'm surprised it's taken as long as it has for it to happen uh, you might be wondering what I'm referring to. I finally got correspondence or a letter from somebody claiming to have inside, uh, the inside scoop on the interpretation of the book of Revelation. Someone wrote me a letter and said that they have direct access to God and they know the very interpretation of, of this particular passage. Uh, I don't want you to worry or look around. It was no one here from this church. It was actually a gentleman from Arizona who I can only assume he's searching the internet to look for churches that are preaching on the subject of Revelation and he's sending little samples of his authoritative interpretation of the book. And he was very gracious and kind to offer his teaching for the small fee of flying him over from Arizona to Chicago and putting him up at a hotel. But uh, declined. I, I, I share that because Revelation chapter 6 is the point in the book of Revelation where a lot of these kind of fanciful and far-fetched interpretations start. And it's where we develop this idea, as I mentioned in the very first week of our series, where we start to wrongly think that the book of Revelation is about things like beasts and barcodes, harlots and horsemen, and trumpets and the timeline for the planet's eventual demise. And I want to say categorically that's not what the book of Revelation is about. I also think that Revelation chapter 6 is the point through the book of Revelation where a lot of us stop reading. It's not that there was something necessarily easy, Revelation 1 through 5, but there is something somewhat more accessible when we're learning about the vision of Jesus Christ and his letter to the churches. And we, we're starting to understand this incredible vision that John has of the throne room of God. But as we start getting into Revelation 6 onwards, we need significant amount of help in order to understand what we're going to learn today are the seven seals or the blowing of seven trumpets, or the emptying of seven bowls. And we get introduced to two beasts and two witnesses and a prostitute and a bride. I mean, it's, it's no wonder that we, we, we kind of venture into Revelation 6, stop very quickly, skim over the middle section of the book, and eventually pick it up again in Revelation 21, where it's again a lot, more easy, a lot easier to read about the bride of Christ and the dwelling place that God has made with her. I think before we get into the reading of Revelation 6, I want to just make sure that we understand that this is indeed a very challenging passage of Scripture for Christians and for non-Christians alike. I would suggest it's probably the most, the most challenging piece of Scripture that a lot of you either have or will read. It's certainly, I think, the most challenging passage of Scripture that, I, that I've ever preached on. I've, I've Spoke, I've spoken on difficult subjects like race and injustice, but actually taking a text from God's word, this is probably the biggest challenge that I've, that I've faced. I was actually thinking to myself, I drew the short straw when I decided to preach on Revelation 6, but quickly stopped that when I realized 
I was the one who set up the preaching schedule and volunteered to do all seven chapters. I, I think the danger is, is that we can very easily go off on tangents. And, and that's possible because even when you read respected, well-known biblical scholars and, and commentators, even they have different interpretations of some of the symbols that are found in Revelation 6. And so I say that to say I want to be very intentional to make sure that as we go through the next, this particular chapter, we're going to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing, forgive me for that phrase, the main thing is Jesus. And we're going to be focusing on that. And I think the second thing that I think is worth knowing is that as if you were to read further chapters 8 through 11 and you come across the blowing of seven trumpets, or even further still, chapter 16, the emptying of seven bowls, those two passages of Scripture plus the one that we are reading today, the, seven, the breaking of seven seals, actually is the same look at historical events taken from a different angle. What the, what the author of the book of Revelation is doing through the inspiration of Jesus is taking three different angles or, or approaching a, a, a church history from three different ways. And it's the period between Jesus' ascension, described in Revelation 4 and 5, and Jesus' eventual return. Each of those different ways, I think, poses a question that, are, that Christians and also non-Christians throughout generations have asked. And today, Revelation chapter 6 asks the granddaddy of all questions, and that is, why does God allow suffering? So with that in mind, let's jump into Revelation 6. We're going to read the entire chapter together. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures, the four living creatures we were introduced to in chapters 4 and 5. I heard one of the four living creatures say in a loud, vo in a loud, in a voice like thunder, come. Uh, just to say, he's not calling John to look, he's calling one of the horsemen out. Come, I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its, its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. I looked and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hands. And then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar of those who had been slain, I saw, sorry, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer. 
until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of, of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? Or in some translations, who can stand? which is the title of the sermon today. I just want you to look at the first verse of chapter eight. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Whew. All right. I think when we experience pain or when we experience evil, in any form, it's felt as total. It blots out everything else. That's why when we have a toothache or when we have a sore toe, it blinds us to the reality that our elbow is bending effortlessly and perfectly. I was going to use the illustration of my knee bending effortlessly and perfectly, but there's nothing perfect or effortless about my knee actually bending. <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's why, and I think it's also the reason why the book of Revelation starts the way it does. Jesus refuses to touch the subject of evil and, to, and refuses to touch the subject of suffering until he's established the fact that he is the victorious king and he speaks over us, fear not, as we learned in Revelation 1, and until he's given us an incredible vision of the triumphant worship that is taking place in heaven and taking place right now as we speak, four living creatures, elders, Angels numbering thousands upon thousands, people from every tribe, nation, and tongue declaring the worth of the lion who has overcome. Jesus, put simply, towers over absolutely everything. But also, he sees the intimate detail of every single faith community, as we read in Revelations 2 and 3. He sees their virtues, he sees their strengths, their failures, and their suffering. And he cares deeply for each and every one of those faith communities as much as he cares for us. Two weeks ago, we looked at Revelation chapter four and five, which describes this amazing scene of God the Father being seated on the throne. And in his right hand, he holds a scroll, which, is, which has writing on the front and the back. And that scroll is sealed with seven seals. The writing is God's plans and purposes for the earth plans and purposes for judgment and the eradication of evil and injustice, as well as plans and purposes to release blessing and redemption and the renewal of all things. And Jesus is described in Revelation 4 and 5 as this, as this mighty warrior, this triumphant lion, the one who has overcome. And, and he, he approaches the throne of God, not as this mighty lion, but as a lamb that was slain and he takes the scroll from God and begins to break the seals as we're gonna read about in Revelation chapter six. He begins to execute on the plans and the purposes of God. 
And as each seal is broken, God's plans for judgment against evil and sin is released. But I think it's very important just to pause for a moment and to say when we speak of God's judgment, we're not speaking of judgment for the sake of revenge. We're speaking of judgment for the sake of of justice, of, of replacing injustice with justice. I think sometimes we consider the wrath or the anger of God against sin and evil as some sort of family secret we all know about, but we just don't want to actually discuss in any great detail. I wrote this about the anger of God. Unlike our anger, God's anger against evil and sin is not bad-tempered or spite. It's not not. It's not revenge. It's not unpredictable or subject to mood. The wrath of God is his perfect, righteous, predictable, unchanging, consistent, and uncompromising response to evil. And the wrath of God towards us is fully satisfied in Jesus for those who put their faith in him. Because God responds predictably, consistently and uncompromisingly to evil, those who are in Jesus can live in peace knowing that Jesus has fully satisfied the wrath of God and we are in him. When we ask the question, why does God allow suffering? Essentially, I think we're asking two subsequent questions. Why do bad things happen to good people? And also, why do good things happen to bad people? You see story after story written by playwrights and screenwriters and authors recognizing that the innocent should be protected and wrongdoers should be judged. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we read a text like Revelation 6, which speaks clearly about the fact that God is doing something about the injustice in the world. And so the breaking of the seven seals, which is also, as I said, echoed through the, uh, th- through the blowing of the seven trumpets and the outpouring of the, of, of the bowls in Revelation chapter 16, describes God's judgment on evil during the period between his ascension and the, and the culmination of his return. And this, this particular passage should give great encouragement to John's original recipients. Remember what we said in week one. Revelation is not written to us, it's written for us. And so the original recipients, when they read this, as they're facing intense persecution from the Roman Empire, would have received incredible encouragement from these words. And can I suggest as much encouragement as Christians in India and China, who right now, according to some reports, are facing unprecedented persecution for their faith. But we mustn't just think this is a message for Christians elsewhere or from another era. This is a message for us as well. I'm hoping that if you are struggling or suffering, and although not martyred for your faith, I'm trusting that this message will give you incredible encouragement when we realize there is one seated on the throne and his name is Jesus. Jesus begins to break open the first of the four seals. Now, I think it's very important for us to understand that the, four, the breaking of the four seals and what pop culture calls the four horsemen of the apocalypse 
they go together as a, as a whole. And can I just address that as an aside? I think so often we, in, we, 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 we aren't aware that we do this, but we look to pop culture or to things around us to give us interpretation of Scripture. These are not the four horsemen of the apocalypse because that suggests that these are things that are only going to happen just before Jesus returns. It's very important to understand that what Jesus is describing is the period between his ascension and his eventual return. These are things that we are experiencing even now. The first horse is released in verse 2, and it tells us that this horse is white. And, his, and the rider of this horse held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Just as a little aside, this is one of those areas where multiple commentators had different views on the interpretation of this first horse. Some actually suggested that this was a picture of Christ. Now, the good news is it doesn't change the interpretation of the entire message of Revelation, whether you believe this is Jesus or not. But I would just put it out there as my conviction based on the things I've read and as I've spent time in the Word. I think this might be Jesus, but I want to say I don't think it is. Why? Because this rider had a bow in his hand. And often the weapon associated with Jesus is what? A double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And secondly, this rider was given a crown, meaning his authority was derived. Jesus is all authority. I think this rider symbolizes the kings of the earth, Romans certainly in the time of the recipients, but I think even in our day, nations and, and rulers and people who are claiming sovereignty, the claiming of the crown, the giving of the crown, claiming sovereignty by trampling others in the name of greed and ambition and imperialism. I think this is human conquest and oppression described at its worst. The second horse in, in verses three and four is red, speaking of war and bloodshed. And it says its rider was given power to take peace from the earth. We, we, I'm sure we know this, but we, uh, it's worth saying war is sold on the promise of peace. But it's peace at, a, at an awful and horrific cost. And peace that only lasts a short time until the next war begins to break out. I would suggest that only Jesus, the Prince of Peace, only Jesus can offer peace that is true and peace that is full and peace that is absolute, peace that transcends all understanding and yes, peace that comes at a cost, but it's the cost of the life of Jesus laid down so that you and I can live in the reality of peace. The third horse in verse five to six is black. And its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And, and for, I think this symbolizes the rampant greed that results in the shortage and the scarcity, or, uh, which results in the economic problems that are often at the root of tensions and wars that happen within nations and between nations. I mean, in verses five and six, we, are see, we see ordinary commodities shooting up in price. It's why there is that voice, two pounds for wheat, for a day, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages. Two pounds was, was the bare minimum that a family could live on. And now suddenly it costs a day's wages just for a family to live on. But notice it says the oil and the wine must remain untouched. The luxury items remain untouched. And it, it, it bears out the reality of what we see happen in the world all over the place. The rich getting richer at the expense of the poor. 
And then lastly, the fourth horse in verses seven and eight is this pale horse. It actually, the Greek word is where we get the color, the name of the green, the color green. So it speaks of a sickly green color. And its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind. And for me, this symbolizes the ultimate threat of any and every earthly tyrant and worldly conqueror. It's the threat of death. History, unfortunately, records time and time again war and famine and a thousand other reasons why people die before their time. John is describing a scene that is very familiar to its original readers or to his original readers. And I want to say he's describing a scene that is very familiar to us. And something that we unfortunately are, if we just were to look around, are living in the reality of a world of conquest, a world of famine, a world of shortage, a world of disease, and a world of early death. He's describing the reality of the present that we live in until, until there is another rider who rides forth on a white horse. And, and although this is not the text we're going to look at, I want to read a passage from Revelation 19 that describes the until moment that Jesus rides forth. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is faithful and true. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. Notice he's not given crowns. Crowns are on his head. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine in fine linen, white and clean. And coming out of his mouth is a sharp double-edged sword with which to strike down the nations. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I I, I hope that after reading those first four seals being opened and then this incredible picture of Jesus, the one who is faithful and true, riding out victoriously, I hope that that stirs you with faith and with expectation for the Lord to return. But what I don't want us to miss is the reality of the armies of God riding behind the one who is faithful and true. The armies of God, that is his people, that is the church of Jesus Christ, riding out victoriously to begin to execute on the victory that Jesus has already won. I've just been considering the reality that I think for too long, the church, especially the church in the West, and I put ourselves in this, to some degree, has been declaring peace, peace over issues of injustice, when in fact we've just been touching it at a very superficial level. And I think this is a time for the church of Jesus Christ, but particularly a call upon Anthem Church, for us to be passionate about preaching the Word of God unashamedly, for us to be desiring the ministry and power and presence of the Holy Spirit, but as a third prong for us to be going after and facing these issues of injustice and doing something about it. And so as we preach and as we desire the presence of God and as we face these issues of injustice and do something about it, we're beginning to usher in a greater expression of His kingdom until Jesus returns. Jesus now opens the fifth seal. In verses nine through 11, and with it comes the cry of the martyrs, those who have believed in Jesus, those who have testified of the Lordship of Jesus, but it cost them them their lives. 
And so they cry out to God, uh, how long, sovereign Lord, how long? I I think if there is ever one question to summarize the book of Revelation, that's it. How long, sovereign Lord? How long? It's a question that has been asked throughout the ages. It's been, a, it's been a question asked by martyrs. It's been a question asked by the people of God. And even though the people of God trust and believe in the Lord, they are facing the reality that their present situation is both unbearable and intoler- intolerable. You don't have to be a martyr to ask the question, Lord, how long? And I think perhaps it's a question many of us are asking. The martyrs see that their, that, that their death has been unjudged, that there is still injustice in their world. But, but notice their cry in verse 9 through 11 is not, a, again, not a cry for petty, spiteful vengeance, but it's a longing for justice, just as anyone who has been deeply wronged longs for justice. But they were told to wait. It seems an appropriate time to just ask this necessary but difficult question. Are you willing to face injustice now for the promise of justice later? When I say that question, I'm not in any way contradicting what I said literally three or four minutes ago by saying as a church, we need to be a church that is ready to go after injustice. But what I'm talking about is particular situations where we want to get our hands and, and, and take vengeance into our own hands. And I think sometimes we, don't, we, we need to know that we, we sometimes need to wait a while. And the only justice we might get is a promise from God and the assurance that He knows. Seal 6 is opened in verse 12, and what follows is a description of the collapse of the earth. Interestingly, it's a collapse of the earth described in two sets of seven. Now, if you've been part of the series for any length of time, you'll know that the number seven is particularly important in the book of Revelation. Seven speaks of completeness. Seven speaks of of totality. If you read Revelation 4 and 5, it's the sevenfold worship of Jesus described in Revelation 5. And here what we have in verse 12 and 14 through 14 is the sevenfold collapse of things in the world. It describes earthquakes and the sun turning black and the moon turning red and so on. It describes seven things. And then in verse 15, the sevenfold collapse of people, princes and kings and generals and the rich and the mighty. Some suggest that this is a a significant social or political turbulence that is going to throw the world into disarray. Other commentators suggest that this is literally describing the end of the world. But either way, from people, from kings all the way to slaves and free, are thrown into panic and they run crying, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the lamb? I mean, that's such an interesting phrase. It's such an interesting term. I mean, we get the fear of spiders and we get the fear of snakes, but but the fear of lambs? I mean, that's that's literally what is is being said here. Uh, But I think the point is being made is that we mustn't misunderstand Jesus's meekness for Jesus's weakness. If Jesus is not received as savior, he will be presented as judge. It's not surprising that Revelation chapter six ends with the question, who can withstand or, or who can stand? It's, it's such an important question that the, the opening of the seventh seal is delayed until this question is answered. Who can stand? 
Look at verse one of Revelation chapter, uh, chapter seven. After this, after the question, who can stand? I saw four angels standing. Who can stand? Angels can stand. But if you drop your eyes down to verse nine in chapter seven, who can stand? Also this great multitude from every nation and from every tribe and from every people and language. Who can stand? We're gonna look at this at three, in three weeks from now. Those who have a savior. Those who are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Those who follow the shepherd that is Jesus. And can I say, if you are here today and you don't follow Jesus as your shepherd and you are not sealed by the promise of the Holy Spirit, there's an incredible promise for us that Paul writes in Romans chapter five. Listen to this. But Christ proved God's passionate love for us by dying in our place that while we were still lost and ungodly, and though the blood of Jesus, and sorry, through the blood of Jesus, we have heard the powerful declaration, you are now righteous in my sight. And because of the sacrifice of Jesus, you will never experience the wrath of God. That's the promise for those of us who are in Jesus. And if you are not in that place today, it will be my privilege to lead you in a prayer where you can surrender your heart to Him and begin to follow Him as your Lord and Savior. And then finally, in Revelation 8 verse 1, the seventh seal is opened. When He opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Sin, sickness, Satan, separation from God, all gone. And in its place, rest, reflection, renewal, redemption, and reward. There's a question that's been lurking throughout the sermon that I asked at the very beginning, which I haven't fully answered yet. And in the last five minutes, I wanna do that before we go back into a time of worship and sing that incredible song, Jesus, Our Living Hope. It's the question of why does God allow suffering? To be honest, I think we know the answer. I think we think we know the answer until we face suffering ourselves. And I'm not in any way suggesting that I'm gonna offer the full answer to why does God allow suffering, but I hope to offer a few thoughts that I've written down that will allow us at least to potentially take one step closer to fully, to fully understand or to, to, to trying to understand this incredible, infinite truth within the confines of our finite brains. I think when we ask the question, why does God allow suffering? We, we struggle with understanding God's goodness and understanding God's strength. God is good, we might say, but is he strong enough? Or God is strong, we might say, but is he good enough to prevent evil and suffering in the world? And I think through the opening of these seven seals in Revelation chapter six, Jesus answers this charge head on. God is both good and God is strong. His strength is seen by the way in which the four horsemen only ride out at, as he breaks each of the seals. And his strength is, is shown by the very clear limits he has set on the authority of death and Hades. I think his, his goodness is seen by the way he marks and protects those who follow him as we're gonna learn from Revelation 7 in a few weeks and by the way he judges the world with silence and, and also sobriety rather than with pleasure. Jesus takes full responsibility 
for what is happening on planet Earth. And he reveals that he has a bigger agenda than our knee-jerk demands for suffering to stop. Seals one through four see him harness the sin of wicked people, whether greed or selfish ambition or injustice, and he uses it to judge the rebellious nations. And then with the sixth seal opened, he appears to wicked people in person to judge them so that he can usher in a new creation. Judgment, friends, we have to understand this. Judgment is a response to human sin. We're probably asking the question, what about the innocent people who are caught up in the judgments? And Jesus addresses this with the opening of the fifth seal. He will indeed judge the whole earth and sweep away life as we know it, but he tells his people to be patient like him as he waits for the complete number of non-Christians to be saved and for the complete number of Christians to lay down their lives for the gospel. God is not only good enough to care about suffering and strong enough to prevent it, Listen to this, but he is also wise enough to see fruit yielded through it and big enough for us to trust in him. He promises to protect his people in the midst of judgment, but he's also frank. He's frank that we will experience pain and suffering through it. Christians will not be mere spectators of suffering, but then neither was he. The one who opens these seals is the lamb who was slain. The one who suffered more than anyone else in human history is the lamb who was slain. He doesn't try to get himself off the hook when it comes to suffering. He placed himself firmly on the hook at at Calvary in order to ensure that when he eliminates sin from the world at his second coming, he will be able to lead those who receive him as Lord to a place where suffering is no more. Sin causes suffering. The world suffers and Christians suffer too, but Jesus Christ has suffered for the world to make an end to sin and suffering in his glorious new kingdom. I'm gonna ask the worship team if you guys wouldn't mind coming up. And we're gonna take just two or three minutes just to reflect a little on the message this morning. And then we're gonna go into a time of worship, just standing up and declaring the reality that Jesus is our living hope. Can we just take a moment to close our eyes and let's just respond in our hearts to the truth of God's Word. Father, we thank You for the reality of Your Word. Jesus, You are the living Word. I pray that today was not just interesting information. I pray today, Lord God, even if some here disagree with some of the thoughts that I've shared, I pray all of that would be pushed aside and that we would see one thing and one thing only, the reality of you on the cross, uh, on, on the throne, the reality of you seated high and exalted, above and in victory over our struggles and hardships and difficulties. Jesus, thank you that you are not indifferent to what we go through. Thank you that you are not apathetic to what we go through. Thank you that you paid the ultimate price so that in you we could find freedom and wholeness and victory over those things that look to hold us down and keep us from moving forward in you. 
Holy Spirit, I ask for the peace of God to be released upon us. Strengthen us, Holy Spirit. Jesus, thank you that you are not just the living word, but you are a living hope. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. To stay up to date, follow at Anthem Church Chicago and visit us anthemforall.org. Anthem Church, all of Jesus for everyone.